good to see so many gathered in and this our harvest service as we come to give thanks to the Lord uh, for all his goodness to us in the year that has been. And so we're going to do that as we turn to his word and to Psalm 100. So if you have a Bible, can I encourage you to open with me to Psalm 100. Psalm 100. This is the word of the Lord. A psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Amen. We thank God for his word to us. Uh, If you have your Bible, can I encourage you to open with me again to Psalm 100, and just as you do so, uh, allow me to pray with you. Lord, as we turn towards your word now, we ask that you would still our hearts Remove all the distractions and busyness of life and of the mind just now. Help us to focus upon it. And by your Spirit, would you take these great truths and plant them deep within us, Lord, that we should know you as you have revealed yourself to us in your word, and that we should come before you even just now with hearts greatly filled with thankfulness for who you are and all that you have done for us. Amen. Well, as we say, harvest is, of course, a time for thanksgiving, a time to thank God for all his goodness to us, to look back and reflect upon a year that has been, to think about a year uh, that lies ahead, and trusting again that we will know the goodness of God in what is before us. That's why Psalm 100 is a, a very appropriate psalm for us today. It's appropriately titled, A Psalm for Giving Thanks, and that's just what we're coming to do today. And yet what we see in Psalm 100 is that it's really a model for worship. And that is because giving thanks and worship are so closely tied together, so closely related. It is that worship flows from a thankful heart. And so this morning we really want to think about two things from this psalm, just two things. Who we worship and how we worship. The who and the how of worship. And we begin then with who we worship. And while it's not hard for us to see who we worship because his name is pretty much in every verse of the psalm, we come to worship the Lord. Worship begins with him. It is he who calls us to come and to worship him. So who exactly is he? Who is the Lord? Well, if you have your Bible there, you'll notice the Lord all in capital letters. And that's really significant. We see it in every verse except verse four, I think. The Lord, all in capitals. And when we see that in the Old Testament, we know that's not just referring to a generic title, like somebody who sits in the house of lords. But that is God's own name, his covenant name, his personal name, the name by which he makes himself known to his people. It's a name that in the Hebrew we would really pronounce as Yahweh, a name that was so sacred to the scribes who copied out the Bible that they didn't dare write it down lest they make a mistake. So they've sort of put a, a substitute to it there instead. It's come to us as the Lord. 
But we know that names are all really important, don't we? Names carry meaning, and especially the Hebrew names that we find in the Bible. Now, boys and girls, great to see some of you still here, and I'm sure that you all have a name. You've probably had it since you were born. But do you know what that name means? Or do you know why you were given it? Maybe your parents just liked the name. Maybe there was someone else in your family who used to have that name. Do you know what it means? Maybe you can go home, you can ask them, why am I called whatever I'm called, and and what does that name mean? Because different names have different meanings. My wife's name is Sarah, and apparently that means princess. Now, she wasn't born into the royal family, but she has a name that means princess, and she likes to remind me she ought to be treated as a princess. So names carry meaning, but some of us also maybe have a nickname, and a nickname can be sort of descriptive. It describes something about you. Back in school, everyone called me Big John, and that's because there was two John McKees in the class, which was just very inconvenient. One was quite small, I was quite tall, so it was Big John and Wee John. So you maybe don't know much about me, but you hear Big John, you think, well, he's probably quite tall, or maybe big-headed, one of the two. (laughs) But a nickname can be descriptive. A real name can carry meaning, a nickname can be descriptive. So what about this name, the Lord? Well, it tells us who God is and what he's like. We see this best of all, all the way back with the burning bush in Exodus 3, where God speaks to Moses out of that burning bush, tells him to go back to Egypt to bring God's people out of there. And Moses says, well, well, who will I say has sent me? And God speaks to him and says, tell them I am has sent you. I am, that's what this name the Lord means, I am. That's where we get that name Yahweh from, from the Hebrew for I am. It's to say he is the Lord, the God who is and who always has been and who always will be. That he is uncreated, eternal and unchanging. That's who this God is. This is his covenant name, the Lord, the the name he makes himself known to, to his people. And his name tells us something about him. But what else do we know about him? Well, verse 3 can be helpful there, can't it? We see that the Lord, he is God, the one true only God. It is he who made us. He's the creator and the ruler of all things. And that he also says we are the sheep of his pasture. That's to say that he cares for his creation as a shepherd cares for his sheep. So this Lord, he is creator. He is the only God. He is the shepherd of his sheep. Harvest should really remind us of that, shouldn't it? When we think about God's goodness, how he cares for his creation, how he causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall and the crops to grow. Because really all of creation is proclaiming the glory of this God. All creation cries out to the glory of God. But as human beings, we are really the pinnacle of God's creation. We have a duty to give glory to him. And we are also able to give glory to him in a unique way that nothing else in creation can do. That we are able to come and to worship him. That is the duty, the responsibility of every man and woman to worship the Lord. In fact, it is to be truly human. The most human thing that anyone can ever do is to worship the Lord. Of course, we don't have to think very hard or look very far to see that people do not worship the Lord as they should that sin itself has corrupted our very worship. The Bible talks about this. It talks about a worship exchange in Romans chapter 1 and verse 23. 
says that mankind exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And that is to say that sin corrupts our worship, that we exchange worship. Instead of worshiping the glorious, immortal, eternal, unchanging God, we worship the things that he has made. Instead of worshiping the creator, we worship the creation and give glory to that instead. And this worship exchange, it is very simply idolatry. That's what we would call it. And whenever we say idolatry, oh, we maybe think of the little wooden or stone statues that people of old used to bow down to, but I mean, nobody's doing that here, not in this country. We've moved beyond those sort of idols. But we see in the Bible, there's a lot to say about idolatry. One of the most famous instances was the idol of Baal. Now, of course, Baal was a false god, but people believed he was a storm god. And it wasn't just the pagans who worshipped Baal, but even God's people came to worship him as well. And that he's a storm god, well, that's significant to the harvest. Because, well, if Baal's happy with you, he's going to send the rains and the crops are going to grow. But if Baal's not happy, the rain won't fall, the crops are going to wither, and everything is a disaster. You see there how people have their false gods, the idols of their hearts, and they attribute their success to these things. They just live in the grip of them. And yes, we've moved far beyond Baal. Nobody here is bound down to Baal. But every nation has its gods, and we have ours. What might they be? The things that we look to to bring us satisfaction and fullness and joy. The things that we build our lives upon. The things that we strive and chase after. Is it money or career or status, reputation, influence, the opinions of other people? Is it sex? Is it that we should just be thought of well by others? Is it the perfect picturesque family life? Or freedom? Freedom's the big one today. The freedom to be who I want to be. The freedom to do what I want to do whenever I want to do it. Because we all have our idols. Many of these things are actually good things that God has given to us, but what this exchange of worship does is it exchanges the things God has given for God himself and seeks to put them in God's place. We take good things and we make them into ultimate things. We would dethrone God and we put something else where he ought to be. He's no longer God alone, but one God among many. Because when people, especially the Lord's people in the Old Testament, the people of Israel came to worship Baal, they didn't forget about the Lord. They just put Baal up there beside him. And so often Christian people do the same thing. We try and hold on to the Lord with one hand and with the other we're, we're chasing after all the things of this world, trying to grasp hold of them, looking for them to, to bring us that satisfaction, that joy that only the Lord can give. But if we've put something in a place that doesn't belong, it can't stay there because it doesn't fit. It's going to come crashing down. And if we have built our lives upon these false gods, if all our hopes and dreams are all looking upon them, well, when the gods come crashing down, we'll come crashing down with them. So what's happening here in this psalm? Well, notice in verse 1, the Lord calls people to worship. And it's the Lord, it's the covenant God, but he's not just calling his people. He calls all the earth, all the earth to come to him, to lay aside our false gods, our idols, whatever they might be, and to find that joy, that satisfaction in him. This world promises so much, but delivers so little. It says you can be satisfied, but it leaves you empty. It says you can have joy, but that joy is like a vapor. It disappears through your fingers. It simply evaporates when you think you have it. But with the Lord, 
There is fullness of satisfaction, of joy, and he calls all people to come and to know and to worship him, the only God, because he is the Lord, verse 3. He is God, not just a God, not just one among many, but the only true and living God. It is he who made us, as verse 3 goes on to say. We didn't make ourselves, and we can't remake ourselves as some people maybe think they can do, to reinvent themselves, to remake themselves in their own image. We like to think we're independent, self-sufficient people. But that's not the case. Very much we depend upon the Lord. Harvest reminds us of that. But really we ought to be reminded of that every day. Each and every breath I take, my lungs do the breathing, but who give me the lungs? Who give me the breath of air? It all comes from the Lord. Stop looking in the wrong places and look to him, to the one who made us. Because we are his sheep. We are like sheep. That's what the Bible tells us. Sheep, if we know anything about them, we know they have a lot of needs because they need a lot of care. But here, as creator, we know God cares for all of his creation. He cares for all of it. He rules it all. He upholds it all. He provides and meets those physical needs. But he is also the good shepherd in a very real sense, meets our great spiritual needs. Because the Bible does speak about God with shepherd language very often. And of course, the most famous instance of that is in John 10 and verse 14, when Jesus himself says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me because it's Jesus Christ alone who can meet our great spiritual need. It's Jesus Christ who exposes the folly and the, the falseness of all the other gods and idols of this world and of our hearts. It's Jesus alone who can deal ultimately with the problem of sin, who can restore us to relationship, right relationship with God. It's Jesus alone who brings us the joy and satisfaction that we seek after in this world. The God of all creation, he knows his creation. He knows us all, knows us each by name as a shepherd knows his sheep. But he's also made his name known to us. We know who it is that we come to worship because his name tells us who he is. It tells us he is a good shepherd. So what is this God like? Well, verse 5 tells us what he's like. Look at it there. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. The Lord is good. Well, you'll see that on every page of the Bible. And we'll have known that at times in our own lives. Even when it doesn't maybe feel like it now, we can all look back and we can find a time when we can say, yes, the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. We see that again throughout the Bible. God's steadfast love. Well, the word in the Hebrew for steadfast love, it could also be put as covenant love. It's the covenant love of the covenant Lord. It's not a generic general love, but it's God's love for his people. And you see that in Old and New Testament when God's people are in exile when they're at the hands of their enemies, when the church is being persecuted by those who seek to destroy it, God's love remains. He does not abandon them. And his faithfulness is to all generations. Now, we've just finished studying the book of Genesis. Uh, if you don't remember that, go back and have a look at it on YouTube. But what did we see there? God's faithfulness to Abraham and to his son Isaac and to his son Jacob and to his 12 sons and to all of their descendants, and right through to us today, God's faithfulness to all generations. But that it, he is a covenant God, and that this is covenant love, covenant faithfulness is hugely significant. Because remember what that name, the Lord, means. He's the eternal and unchanging God. 
Therefore, his goodness, his love, his faithfulness, these are unchanging things. With people, it's a different story. There's some days we're very good and other days we're not so good at all. There's some days where our hearts are very warm, we feel very loving, and other days when our hearts are quite cold and unloving. Days when we're faithful and other days when we're utterly faithless. But not so with God because he is unchanging in his goodness, his love, his faithfulness. His name tells us not just who he is, but also what he is like. So who do we come to worship? Well, we come to worship the covenant Lord, the only God, the creator and ruler of all things, the good shepherd who cares for his sheep. And he is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. So that's who we come to worship firstly. But secondly, let's think about how we are to worship him, how we worship. And Psalm 100, as we've said, well, it's a model for worship. And that's because in this psalm, we see seven commands for how we are to worship God. If you like to underline your Bible or you're making notes, make a note of this here, these seven commands. To make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth to serve him with gladness, to come into his presence with singing, to know that the Lord is God, to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, to give thanks to him and to bless his name. Seven commands, seven commands that tell us how we are to worship. And no doubt when you look at those seven commands, it's the first one that's really everyone's favorite, isn't it? To make a, a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Because not everyone can necessarily make a tuneful noise or a pleasant noise, but we like to think we can still very much make a joyful noise, don't we? You know, we had this choir here today. I didn't sign up. I knew my limitations. <laughs> Nobody asked me to sign up. That might have been deliberate. But I'm here, and I'm able to make a joyful noise. And speaking to a friend recently, he used to be a music teacher. He's in the know about these things. He says he doesn't think anyone's born tone deaf. We just are poorly trained and pick up bad habits as we grow. Well, some of us pick up more bad habits than others, but that's okay. We can all still make a joyful noise, can't we? But worship is so much more than just coming here on a Sunday to, to sing and to make that joyful noise. Because the Bible gives us a picture of worship that really encompasses the whole of life. That the Lord who made us didn't just make a part of who we are, but he made the whole of who we are. Therefore, we are to worship him with the whole of who we are. Worship isn't just some little spiritual thing we keep over there for Sundays. But it's for all of life. It's emotional. It's, it's physical. It's mental. We see that in worship. Verses 1 and 2 there, we see joy and gladness. Well, these are emotions. And we're to make and to serve and to come and sing. Well, these are all physical things that we do. But it's perhaps the mental aspect of worship that's maybe the most important. Verse 3, to know. We have seven commands here, but it's that command to know that sits in the middle of those seven. We've got five verses, but it's verse three sits right in the middle of those. Because this is central, to know that the Lord, he is God. Because our worship really begins with our knowledge of God, that we know who it is we come to worship. And everything else we do flows out of that. You maybe hear phrases like, empty your mind. People tell you that the, whenever you come to do like meditation and things like that. It's really the language of the cults. Empty your mind. Just come as a blank canvas, ready to be filled with any old nonsense. But that's not Christian worship. Because in Christian worship, we engage the mind. There's this mental aspect to it. And it's really, we take truth and we apply it. That's what worship is. We take the truth of God, who he is, what he's done and what he's promised to do, 
and we apply those truths to our lives. That's something that uh, the idols of this world could never do for us because that's just going to leave us utterly empty, utterly joyous. But when we take the truth of God, it's absolutely different. Because when we remember God, we discover that things change. There are days in life when we're physically tired and when our service isn't with gladness because it just feels like a slog, when it's all duty and no delight. There's other times when making a joyful noise seems impossible. Because Psalm 100, well, it's a psalm that's so full of joy, isn't it? There's other psalms talk about difficult times in the Christian life. This one's so full of joy, and you're reading it and thinking, that's totally out of reach. That's very far from where I am right now. Making a joyful noise, I can just about force a smile whenever I meet somebody. Whenever we remember God, we discover that things change. Our circumstances change, our situations change, but God, he is forever the same. And that's why this mental aspect of worship is so important. Because Psalm 100 tells us who God is so that we might know him and remember him. Think about verses 3 and verse 5 there that we thought about. Who God is, what he's like, what great truths they are. To know that our Lord, he is the one true and only God. That he created and governs all things. And that he cares so deeply for his creation as a shepherd cares for his sheep. To know that he is good, that his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. What a difference that might make when we take this truth and apply it in our lives. There's an old Scottish minister who used to talk about taking little verses of the Bible that tell us about God, about what he's done, what he's promised to do, and just reading them over and over again. The same words, the same verses. Just read it again and again and again. And then keep reading it. And the idea is that we get so deep into the Word of God that the Word of God gets deeply into us, that we're totally immersed in it. There's a Puritan minister, John Bunyan, and it was said that if you pricked him, he would bleed bibline. That is to say that the Word of God ran through his veins. He was so immersed in it, so shaped by it, in his thoughts and his actions, his attitudes, and his responses to the different situations of life. And certainly this isn't an easy fix. This isn't a quick remedy when the hard times come. But what this is is something that requires effort and, and work and time and study. But we can reap the rewards of that because it will make a lasting impact upon our lives. And since all of life is worship, well, this shapes how we worship God as well. Music helps us to do that too, doesn't it? When we take these truths and we put them to a tune, they're easier to, to remember and to, to sing along to them, aren't they? That's what makes a good hymn or a good song. Not whether it's old or new, not whether it's got a catchy tune, but the truth that it conveys, the content of the words. Because worship is ultimately for the glory of God, yes, but it's also for our good. And when we sing, we worship God, but we also teach and remind ourselves of who he is and of what he's done. And that's why we're very deliberate about what we sing here in Rich Hill. We don't just sing something because it's catchy, but we think about the content of the words, the truth it conveys. Because when the weight of the world is on your shoulders, a catchy tune with empty words is absolutely no help to anyone whatsoever. But when hard times come in the Christian life, there is this peculiar experience some Christians know, you may have known it yourself, where you begin to hum and you don't even really realize you're doing it, and you're humming some old familiar tune or maybe some sort of newer thing that you've recently learned. 
And as you hum, then the words come with it, and they seem to flow. Words that convey great truth, and we remember God, and things change in that moment. No, not everything's immediately fixed. We're not suddenly full of happiness, jumping up and down. We're not grinning ear to ear. But we can have this real and deep sense of joy. Joy that comes not from us, but joy that comes from the Lord. It's not something artificial. It's not something we're trying to force ourselves to have. It's an external joy coming from God to us. A joy very much in the Lord. I think you see that maybe also in cases of people who have something like dementia. Condition that robs them of so much of who they are. And yet if you sit with them and you open the Bible with them, as you read, you see their lips begin to move. And they're not repeating what you're saying after them. They're saying it along with you because that truth is so deeply embedded. In some peculiar way, still it remains. And they hear a tune. And they're able to hum or maybe even sing along. And even in that, in that state, in that condition, there is this very real sense of worship. And so worship, yes, it is ultimately for the glory of God, but it is very much also for our good. And so it is good for us that we should worship, that we should come before the Lord with hearts filled with thankfulness, with gratitude, and worship Him. We said that worship flows from a thankful heart, and that's really what we see here in verse 4. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. We're giving thanks as we worship. But also notice what's happening in verse 4. There's this idea of coming into the presence of God. Verse 2 talks about coming into his presence. But verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. That's temple language. It's talking about the temple in Jerusalem when people would have gone up to worship God. See, Psalm 100 would have been a festival psalm. People would have sung it at times of thanksgiving, maybe something like the harvest, when they go up to the temple and go up there to, to worship God. It's a very deliberate thing. We have a wee post box at home. That's not really significant, most people do, but we don't really look in it that often because everything's done by email, isn't it? But maybe once a week I'll check this. And the other day I saw a wee thank you card from a couple who had got married. You know the sort, it's got a nice wee picture of them on their wedding day, all very looking well and very happy. And I'll probably not frame it, but it's a nice wee thing that they've given us. Uh, and well, it could have been in that post box for days. It could have been there a week and I, I wouldn't have known. Obviously, they just had to drop it off and, and drive on. They didn't stay to talk, and that's quite all right. You know, maybe 200 of these things to give out. They can't spend an hour with everyone. They just drop it off and drive on. That's fine. I take no offense at that. But whenever we come to worship God, is that how we would worship him? That we just drop off our thanks and drive on? That it's just a quick nod in his direction? Or is it something very deliberate that we're doing, that we're doing here on a Sunday but also that we're doing throughout the week because, again, all of life is the, to be this thankful worship, this giving thanks to him in praise. Are we deliberate about that? Because that's what this psalm is really showing us, this idea of coming up into the presence of God, coming to the temple to worship him. But, of course, as people came to that temple to worship, well, they had to go to a certain place at specific times, and they had to go and meet there with the priest who would really go to God on their behalf. And they had to go through ceremonies and sacrifice and all of these things. But what a joy for us that we live on this side of the cross. And to know that Jesus Christ has fulfilled all of these things. That he has fulfilled our great spiritual need. That we can come before the Lord anytime and anywhere. 
that we don't have to go through any other men or intermediaries because we go straight to Christ. That it is him who has fulfilled all the ceremonies and sacrifices by himself being that great and final sacrifice upon the cross. That it's Jesus Christ himself, him and him alone who meets our greatest need. And as we come before him, we come to give thanks and to bless his name. That he is that good shepherd who knows his sheep. That he knows us, he cares for us, and he keeps us. So that's who we worship and that's how we are to worship him. Isn't that a wonderful picture? A wonderful God we have. A God who is the giver of all good things, who meets those physical needs, who meets our great spiritual needs. This is who he is. This is how we come to worship him. The Lord, the covenant God, the creator of all things, the good shepherd who cares for his sheep. And so as we come to worship him, let Psalm 100 be our instruction as we do so, making that joyful noise, serving with gladness, coming into his presence with singing, knowing that he is God, entering his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, giving thanks to him and blessing his name. And as we do all of these things, let us remember to whom it is that this worship is due, just into whose presence are we coming the eternal, unchanging God who is altogether good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word that tells us just who you are and what you are like. That there is none like you, the only God, who is so good, whose steadfast love endures forever and whose faithfulness is to all generations. Lord, as we think about who you are, would our hearts be filled with thankfulness that we would be able to come into your presence with singing, that we would come today, we would come every day, we would live our lives as worship to you, the great God, the only God, creator of all things, the shepherd of his sheep. And we thank you for that good shepherd, Jesus Christ, your son whom you have sent. For he alone is able to meet our greatest of needs. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.